Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big political stories this week, in a 5-4 to four decision, the Supreme Court has blocked the Trump administration's bid to end the DACA program. While the court agrees that Trump can end the program, the decision written by Chief Justice Roberts said they did not properly weigh how ending the program would affect those who had come to rely on its protections. For more on the Supreme Court decision on DACA, we'll speak to Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. First of all, this was actually a surprise decision for a lot of immigration advocates and a lot of the people um, who I've been talking to leading up to this. Many people thought that the Supreme Court would end up ruling um, in the other direction and allowing the Trump administration to end DACA. So this came um, a little bit as a surprise. But it's important to note exactly what the Supreme Court is ruling on. They aren't ruling that um, the Trump administration can or cannot end DACA um, generally. They agree that the Trump administration has the legal authority to end DACA, just like the Obama administration had the legal authority to set it up. But what they're saying is that the way the Trump administration went about ending DACA in the fall of 2017 wasn't following the legal procedures. And so for that reason, um, they are upholding DACA and allowing these protections for deportation to continue for um, the immigrants who are enrolled in the program. The court found that the way they rescinded the program is what violated the federal law. And Justice Roberts wrote that the Department of Homeland Security didn't properly consider what, if anything, to do about the hardship to DACA recipients if the program were to be terminated. What does that mean exactly? So this was a part of the oral arguments that I attended last fall um, at the Supreme Court. This is one of the arguments that people were making that the Trump administration didn't fully consider all the ramifications of ending DACA. And so in the opinion, Chief Justice Roberts wrote that, yes, he agreed that DHS didn't do enough to really take into consideration um, what would happen to DACA recipients if they were to end the program. He said that they should have looked into maybe um, different ways of un- undoing the program, maybe giving DACA recipients more time to finish schooling or um, other other ways to make it easier on DACA recipients rather than just cutting it off immediately. Um, so that was something that, in the opinion, Justice Robert said that, of course, DHS didn't necessarily have to do all those things, but they certainly did not take all those things into consideration and something that he said that they probably should have done. I mean, it makes sense for the people enrolled in the program. They were able to work, be here without fear of being deported. So you're starting a life, continuing a life here, basically. And what happens? You know, all these people submitted their names willingly. Would they be immediately deported at that point? You know, so Mm -hmm. if you don't have that plan to set that up with a follow through on it, it could be a particularly bad hardship for these recipients. You did mention in your article, kind of by the numbers, who these DACA recipients are. Remind us of some of those numbers there. So the DACA program is for people who are brought into the U.S. illegally as children. So they are under 16 years of age when they arrive in the country. And and a lot of them have grown up in the U.S. So if you look at the data that that DHS has pulled together on DACA recipients, most of them are in their, their 20s and early 30s. Um, And nearly half of DACA recipients are 26 years old or older. 
um, meaning that they've been in the U.S. for at least 10 years. If they had to come to the U.S. under the age of 16 and are now you know, 26 or older, that's, that's a long time that they've begun to build their lives here. And so this is another uh, one of the huge arguments behind keeping DACA in place. And one of the reasons why DACA is um, actually a very popular program, even among Republicans. Many recent polls show that even Republicans support the idea behind DACA. Um, in some cases, majorities of Republicans support it. More than 90 percent of DACA recipients are employed and about 45 percent of them are in school. And a lot of them are working in food services, grocery stores, hospitals. What We just went through this pandemic and those were all the essential workers that we were relying on to get us through all of that. So still playing a very important part in our economy here in the United mm-hmm. States. So what has been the reaction? I know President Trump took to Twitter was pretty angry about it. This is likely going to elevate this issue of immigration for the presidential campaign again. But he was saying all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. He said, do you get the impression that the Supreme Court doesn't like me? This is coming after there was another decision that didn't go his way. And he went on to say he's mm-hmm. going to release a new list of conservative Supreme Court justice nominees. And if he gets the chance, he's going to pick from that list. Yeah, this certainly seemed to um, frustrate the president as we saw the quick tweet right after on the Supreme Court decision saying that, you know, these are horrible and politically charged decisions coming out of the Supreme Court, um, you know, and, and of course, his follow up tweet as well, questioning whether, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't like him. And that's why they're issuing these decisions. Um, and so this is this is certainly a political issue. And it's something that for a lot of Trump supporters, they do really care about the judges that Trump picks. Uh, you know, we all know that many conservatives care a lot about the judicial branch and care a lot about getting judges that would support conservative um, conservative views of reading the law. And so I think this is an opportunity for Trump to, again, um, bring up that important voting issue as we near November. As we said, the president, the administration does have the authority to end the program. It's just about how they do it. They can start the process over again, although it mm-hmm. will take a long time. It will take months. I don't know if it'll be something that will be ready to go by November, by the time the election that happens. But if they wanted to, they can go through the process again to end this program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there, you know, there are a couple of things that we're watching coming out of this decision. And that's, of course, the first thing. Will the Trump administration try to rush and um, end DACA through a different way? If you read the opinion um, from Justice Roberts, Um, He lays out quite a few ways that the Trump administration could have rightfully ended DACA. There are quite a few pathways that he lays out. So it'll be interesting to see whether the Trump administration actually does go ahead um, and try this again. And then, of course, it's still questionable whether people can now begin applying for DACA as new applicants. Um, That's something that there is not quite enough clarity on. And the Department of Homeland Security has not yet um, confirmed whether they will begin accepting new applications. Steph Kite, reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. On the coronavirus front, we have some good news in the fight against COVID-19. A study out of the UK has found that dexamethasone, a cheap and widely used steroid used to reduce inflammation, reduced death rates by about a third in the most severely ill COVID-19 patients that were on ventilators. The drug, however, did not provide any benefit for those that didn't need respiratory support. For more on this, we'll speak to Jeremy Olson, healthcare reporter at the Star Tribune. It was a comparative trial. It's called the recovery trial in England. They're pooling patients who have COVID together in that country fairly well in this trial. 
and some of the patients received dexamethasone and others received what would be just called usual care in the treatment of the infection. And what they found was that, especially for those that were on ventilators, patients who were having real breathing problems due to their infections, the death rate went down by about a third, roughly, in the dexamethasone group, those that actually took the drug. And then in patients who weren't at that level yet, they didn't need ventilators to breathe, but they didn't need respiratory support, like a nasal cannula or something like that, the death rate went down about 20%. They put this out on a press release. Now, normally you'd expect results like this to come out in the New England Journal of Medicine or some big journal First, they actually jumped the gun a little bit and put it out in a press release. So some doctors are waiting for more results, but it was nonetheless encouraging news coming this week. Yeah, I mean, everything is being released so fast, and we're hearing about how clinical trials are being pushed through, you know, at warp speed and all. So it is kind of interesting the way they wanted to release this. And as you mentioned, there were some doctors that said, hey, well, it looks promising, but we're going to wait. We don't want to use it. Tell us how it works and how it affects the body, because this is a corticosteroid we're finding out more about COVID-19, and it's not necessarily just a respiratory disease. It does affect the blood vessels a lot. So how does this work in the body? To start with, it helps to discuss the cycle of COVID. There seems to be a bit of a roller coaster effect with COVID. You get sick, you get the infection, symptoms emerge, respiratory symptoms, you have trouble breathing. And in a lot of patients, you start to get better. You start to creep upwards in your health, you're starting to feel good, and then bam, it hits you again. And it's the second cycle that is causing a lot of the deaths and severe consequences. It's your immune system kind of kicking in aggressively and perhaps too aggressively. And it's an immune system reaction that, that can be fatal in a lot of these cases. Dexamethasone isn't going to do anything for your initial flu symptoms. It's not going to do anything for your sore throat. But it is a corticosteroid. And one of its functions is to suppress the immune system. It's a fairly blanket effect in muting the immune system. So when you give it to patients, it knocks down that immune system response and prevents the immune system from being overaggressive. So that seems to be how it works and, and why it's been effective in treating this second wave. From the study, they said that the drug offered no benefit to patients who didn't need respiratory support. So this is really just going to be used for the most critically ill people. That's correct. And, and I mean, the good news is we seem to be finding drugs for different stages. Obviously, earlier, a U.S. trial approved remdesivir, an antiviral drug. And that seems to be working at the earlier stage before patients get on ventilators and at this critical stage. So we, we're starting, we went from nothing a, a couple months ago to having drugs that are, seem to work at different stages. And, and that's at least a start. And it's a weird thing because we keep hearing more about it and how COVID-19 kind of affects all sorts of different parts of the body. So it totally makes sense that a lot of these drugs that you would never really think of are used to kind of treat these very specific types of symptoms. And we're kind of creating this whole mosaic of ways to treat this right now. And I was surprised when I saw this press release, I was calling around to my local hospitals. The local medical center here, a trauma center, Hennepin County Medical Center said, we're glad this is what the results are because we've been using this drug this way since the start. They looked at the risk versus the benefit of dexamethasone and saw that the potential benefit, even in the absence of a lot of literature, was promising. And so they provided it to almost all of their patients who reached that critical stage. Other hospitals here in, in, in my area, in the Twin Cities, wouldn't touch it or did it very rarely. So it was interesting to see that that hospital had been so aggressive. And others have around the country. Henry Ford in, in Detroit is one. I'm sure there are some in, in California. I know there are some in California. So other hospitals have made that individual decision to just go ahead with it and, and await the trial results that we got this week. And the hospitals that you spoke to that were aggressive in using it, they were finding a lot of luck with it though, right? I mean, obviously they would and keep using it if it wasn't helping out at all. 
Well, they can't say because they didn't do what this research did, which is, you know, have half the patients receive that drug and half not and see what happened. They just gave it to patients. But now at Hennepin County Medical Center, for example, they saw a lot of progress. Patients got better. Patients got off the ventilator. They were having results, but they also had patients who took it and still died. I mean, these are patients who were in serious condition anyway, so maybe that was going to happen. But the point is, yeah, they had seen some results, and it all came from the concern with this is that when you block the immune system and there's a virus running around in you, it might allow the virus to do its thing, to accelerate, to expand, for you to even be more infectious. So there has been some concerns about this drug, but then there had been other studies using this drug in patients who have what this called this acute respiratory syndrome and the severe state, and it worked. This was outside of COVID. This was other patients who had the severe lung problems, and it was working. So they kind of used this other research, applied it here, and we're having some results. Well, hopefully we get a little bit more information and, and we truly do kind of come to a consensus that this is helping and then doctors have one more tool to fight COVID-19 in patients that are severely ill. But for now, it is good news that we're finding out more and more about this. Jeremy Olson, healthcare reporter at the Star Tribune. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. And a little more good news for policymakers facing tough decisions about how to reopen schools and daycare centers. A recent study finds that children and teenagers are only half as likely to get infected with the coronavirus as adults age 20 and older. They also don't usually develop harsh symptoms even if they do get infected, but they can transmit the disease. For more on this, we'll speak to Joel Achenbach, science writer at The Washington Post. It is a very plausible that children don't get the virus as easily. They can get it and they can get sick. But according to this new study that just came out in Nature Medicine, you know, reliable peer-reviewed journal, they looked at six countries, China and Singapore, I think South Korea, they looked at six countries and found in general that it appears that the only way you can explain the number of cases and the whole sort of epidemic curve in these different countries is if children didn't get it very often. In fact, roughly half as often as people over 20, I say anyone up to the age of 20. And the other thing they found is that only about 21% of the children who got the virus actually showed symptoms. That's very low. For people over 60, or actually I think over 70, three out of four actually get symptomatically sick. So the age difference is is a big signal here, and obviously it has implications for schools and and should open the schools. And I know a lot of parents and teachers are very interested in that topic. Those six countries, briefly, were Canada, China, Italy, Japan, Singapore, and South Korea. So, I mean, countries that were pretty hard hit had a lot of cases. So there is a lot of data to help support all this. And as you were mentioning right now, big implications for schools. Everybody's wondering how to reopen the schools right now. The leading thing we're hearing is some type of hybrid learning. Still some people at home doing remote learning, maybe some instruction with kids in the actual school. But at least this could bode well for that. The science can't answer all the questions about what we should do. What it can tell you is the likelihood of kids getting sick, the likelihood that they do get sick, how bad it will be. Unanswered in this new study is, well, how easily do they transmit it to adults, including, for example, their own teacher or bringing it back home to their parents? We hear from people who are concerned about 
schools reopening because the likelihood that it could cause some additional spread of the virus. But we also know there's a lot of parents out there who are really losing their minds as they're trying to balance childcare and work and all the other responsibilities of life. And the kids themselves, in many cases, they're, you know, they're just not learning anything. They're taking a real hit and it can be mentally stressful for them. We want the schools to reopen fundamentally. I mean, I think everyone wants that. It needs to be done in a safe fashion. And the question is, when do you do it? And there's some other data, too, that's interesting, too. We're talking about the kids and that, but the CDC had just said for people with underlying health conditions, which we already know affects them a lot more, they're hospitalized six times more often than others, and they die 12 times more often than people that don't have the same underlying health conditions. So it is this weird polar opposite thing when it comes to younger people and older people. From the beginning, one of the clear signals is being older raises your risk a lot. That is your risk of a serious outcome. Most people who are sick and are even hospitalized with COVID are not particularly elderly. In terms of people who have a fatal case of it, very high rates among the elderly and among people, as you said, who have these comorbidities. Now, when you talk about comorbidities, tens of millions of people just in the U.S. alone. Just think of all the people you know who have either a heart condition or they have some autoimmune disorder, the HIV positive, a lot of, a lot of issues that millions and millions of people are affected by that. And what I've been told by the experts is age is the biggest risk factor. Being over 60, 70, 80, 85, the older you are, the much higher risk of a bad outcome because of the immunosenescence. Your immune system gets dysregulated. It is more vulnerable to those cytokine storms you've probably heard about where it overreacts to the virus and you have these really bad pneumonia-like symptoms. Uh, and it's scary. I, you know, I have an elderly mom. I worry about her. And so, you know, I'm like, mom, don't go running around town. Take this seriously. This is unlike flu, by the way, because flu does, influenza does make children sick and it is dangerous for small children. We don't see that with the coronavirus. And the researchers in that study noted that they obviously don't know exactly why children are less susceptible, but they say it could be a result from immune cross protection from other coronaviruses or they had the flu and their body is just kind of primed to fight this type of infection. So just super interesting stuff and con just confirming a little bit more what we already knew about it with children. This new study is a statistical study, like mathematical models, looking at a lot of data. The question of what exactly is happening in the bodies of a person who gets this virus, whether it's a kid or a young adult who just shrugs it off, we're doing a whole other story on that about why does it vary so much in its intensity? Why does this disease kill some people, but others, it's just it comes and goes like nothing. They don't even know they're sick. So that's a whole nother riddle. And it could be that some people have what amounts to partial immunity to it, maybe not specific neutralizing antibodies, but their system is just better primed to fight off this virus. Joel Achenbach, science writer at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. 